everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. Hello everyone and welcome to History and Mystery. I am your ghost host Ariel and today I will be taking you on a tour to one of the most famous museums in the world, the Louvre in Paris, France. This amazing building has been used as a fortress, a grand palace for kings, queens, and emperors, a home for the arts, and a location of bloody massacres. After I'm done explaining the history of the Louvre, I think you too will understand why this place is definitely haunted. Before we get into all of that, I wanted to let you know about my Patreon page. I am now going to have a bonus episodes available for those who donate to the show. They won't be as long as my regular episodes, but they are going to cover some historical and creepy things. Ever stop and think, why is it that nursery rhymes are so creepy? Or what exactly is a shadow figure? Well, that's the kind of thing I will be exploring on my bonus episodes. I have two tiers available. The Thunderbird tier is donating a dollar a month. Joining this tier will get you a shout out on my show as well as access to all of my new bonus episodes. My $3 a month tier is called the Mothman tier. You too will get a shout out on my show as well as access to my bonus episodes and you will also get a monthly newsletter that will cover monsters and UFO sightings that are reported in today's news. You can find a link to my Patreon page down below and you can also get there by going to my website historyandmystery.org. On my website you can also find photos from my trips, information about dyslexia, and you can also listen to the show right from the website. I encourage everyone to go check it out. Another big way you could support my show is leaving a comment and a review on iTunes. It really helps me get more listeners, and I'd love to add more people to the History and Mystery family. One more easy and free way you could support my show is sharing it with your friends and family. Let them know it's out there. Maybe they'll like to listen to this show as well. I just passed 3,500 downloads, so thank you all so much. And as always, please add me on Facebook and Twitter at History and Mystery. You can also join our History and Mystery family by joining our group page, which is History and Mystery group page. You can also add me on Instagram at History underscore Mystery 13. And if you have a personal paranormal or UFO or cryptid type story, Story and you want to hear it on my show, email it to me at historyandmystery.13 at gmail.com. Don't be shy. And also, of course, I will make it anonymous if you so choose. Now it's time for our monster of the week.
This week's Monster of the Week is named the Nain Rouge, and the legend surrounding this monster comes from Detroit, Michigan. The Nain Rouge is French for Red Dwarf, and it is also called the Demon of the Saint. This creature is said to originate from a story that came from an early French settlement of Detroit. The Ottawa Indians had their own legends about this creature. They called him Impish, or Offspring of the Stone God. They also viewed this creature as a protector and a bit of a prankster. The stories vary on how this all got started, but according to the main legend, when the Detroit's founder, Anton de la Moth Cadillac, arrived in the area in 1701, he was attacked by a small dwarf-like creature with flaming red eyes, black hair all over his body, and rotted pointy teeth. After this encounter, the people in the colony felt that this had cursed the land and also cursed Anton, for he had a lot of misfortune after this event. Another story says that Anton had seen the creature and went to a local fortune teller to ask what to do about it. She told him that he needed to appease the Nin Rouge in order to live peacefully on the land. But instead of following her advice, he went out looking for the Nan Rouge. And when he found it, he smacked it over the head with his cane and yelled, Get out of my way, you red imp! Imp is a French word for hobgoblin that is from the French folklore. As you could imagine, this did not go over too well, and the Nin Rouge cursed him, and shortly after this, Anton was charged with abuse of power and was reassigned to the Louisiana colonies. After this, he went back to France where he was imprisoned, and then after his release, he lost his entire fortune. All the bad luck he brings didn't end with Anton's death. This creature has been seen many times in the Detroit area, and it is believed that if you see him, bad luck will follow. He has made an appearance before many major events in the city's history. He was seen not only before, but after the Battle of Bloody Run during Pontiac's Rebellion. The battle happened on July 30, 1763. He was reportedly seen dancing among the 58 dead British soldiers, as if he were celebrating the death of the men. The battle was so bloody that the river ran red with blood for days, according to eyewitnesses at the time. He was seen again right before the Detroit fires of 1805. The fires burnt down almost the entire city. All of the misfortune that happened during the War of 1812 to Governor and General William Hull leading up to the surrender of Detroit are blamed on the Nin Rouge. More sightings of the Nin Rouge were claimed throughout the 1800s. They normally were seen before a death or a great family loss. Two utility workers were said to have seen the Nin Rouge right before the 1967 Detroit riots, and another sighting was reported before the ice storm of 1976. The Nin Rouge is a popular cryptid in the city. Today, a brew pub in downtown Detroit has a signature brew named the Detroit Dwarf Lager, and in 2015, Woodbury Wine introduced a French red label called the Nin Rouge Red. There is also a parade as a way to taunt and call him out, and the parade is called the March de Nin Rouge. They also have a way for you to taunt the Nin Rouge and blame him for all the misfortune in your life. But looking at this legend, I don't know if that's the smartest move to make. I have no idea if this is just a legend or if it has any truth to it. But if you're feeling lucky, then I guess you can try this out. For those that do, I wish you luck.
Today, the Louvre in Paris, France is a world-famous art museum. It also is the biggest art museum in the world. People come from across the globe to tour its vast halls full of art. It boasts 380,000 objects and displays 35,000 works of art. The exhibits at the Louvre include drawings, paintings, sculptures, objects to art, and archaeological finds. The Louvre covers 652,300 square feet, or 6,600 square meters. One thing that always stuck out to me while doing this research of the Louvre is how art is always drawn to this building in many different ways, even when it was empty for a time. The museum today is such a peaceful place, bringing in 10.2 million people just in the last year. On average, that's about 30,000 daily visitors. While the main focus in modern times is the artwork on the walls of the winding hallways with its lush gardens, keep this in mind. The building is over 800 years old, and the modern museum today hides the history of the building's bloody past of kings, queens, and murder. If you were to go back in time to 1190, you would not see the building we know as the Louvre today. You would have instead seen a vast stone fortress, much like the White Tower portion of the Tower of London. Built in the 12th century by King Philip II, this fortress was originally not created for royals to live in, but it was built to protect the city from the English soldiers who were in Normandy at the time. Some historians argue about what the name of this fortress was called and the meaning behind it, but most say that it comes from the French word Louvre, which means fortress or stronghold. The old remains of the original castle can be seen in the basement under the museum today. The castle changed a lot over the years to expand its military power, but the biggest changes came with the Renaissance. In the 16th century, the fortress turned into a royal palace for the first time. When the king Francis Plumiers I moved in, so did culture and style. His portrait is still in the Louvre today. He was the first king of France to be both a connoisseur and a patron of the arts. The king even got Leonardo da Vinci to come, even though he was ailing, to the palace to paint him some art before he passed away. And with him, he brought the most famous painting of all, the Mona Lisa. After he passed away in France, the Mona Lisa has stayed in the Louvre Museum ever since. While Francois was in Italy, he became obsessed with that Italian Renaissance style, so he wanted to build something that captured the feel of the true Italian Renaissance. So to do so, he decided to build a brand new palace fit for a king. He had the old tower torn down. He had the moats of the castle filled in to make room for his grand vision. He built a palace fit for a king. His palace had Italian-style carvings and statues carved out of white marble along the front of the building looking down upon an open courtyard and a lush garden. Inside, he had old, dark royal apartments redone to be open and bright. He filled the halls with sculptures created by Jean Goujon. It was a modern marvel at the time. The halls with its rounded marble and granite carved ceilings and great stone pillars and statues reflected the realism style of the Renaissance. 
After King Francois I passed away, his son, King Henry II, continued his father's grand plan with the help from his wife, Queen Catherine de' Medici. The queen was from the powerful de' Medici family in Italy that was famous for being a patron of the arts, among other things. She came up with the idea to construct the Tuileries Palace. The Tuileries Palace at the time was built separate from the main building. Catherine might have just been queen with her husband being the main king, but she had the true power and she knew it. Even after her husband's death, leaving her son to take over as King Charles IX, she knew how to manipulate people to get what she wanted even if she had to manipulate her own son and daughter. She used her power of manipulation to be the orchestrator of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And this sounds like a scene straight out of Game of Thrones. It all started on August 8th, 1570, when there was a peace agreement between the Catholics and the Protestants. It was meant to put an end to the three-year-long civil war. To strengthen the peace between the two regions, a wedding was to be held between Catherine's daughter Margaret and Henry of Navarro, a prince in his own right and also a powerful Protestant leader. The wedding was to be held August 18, 1572. A lot of the Protestant leaders and prominent families came to Paris for the celebration. Right after the wedding, Catherine became worried that a Protestant admiral named Gaston Gaspard de Coligny was going to lead her son King Charles IX into a war with Spain. To stop this from happening, she ordered an assassination of Coligny, but it was a secret at the time. It did not work, and he was only wounded. Because of this, Charles had to appease the angry Protestant leaders who were still staying at the Louvre by vowing to investigate the attack. After the failed attempt, Catherine summoned him to a meeting and convinced her son that the Protestants were ready for a rebellion and that they needed to stop it at all costs. So the King Charles and his mother made a hit list of what prominent leaders needed to be killed. However, this turned into a large-scale massacre that killed way more people than were on the list. As the bells tolled to signal mass in the early morning hours of August 24, 1572, the bells were also a signal to begin the slaughter. The king ordered his men to drag out all the Protestant leaders on the hit list from their royal apartments and kill them in the courtyard. At the same time, they armed the French citizens and convinced them of a Protestant uprising. This triggered a massive mob of the common people to kill any Protestant they came across, men, women, or child. The French troop chained off streets so that the Protestants could not escape. After the killings, the commoners tossed their bodies into the River Seine. The king sent orders that afternoon that the killings had to be stopped. However, this lasted throughout August into October, spreading into 12 other cities. By the end, an estimated 3,000 Protestants were killed in Paris, and 70,000 Protestants were killed in all of France. The groom of the princess was the only one spared. However, when it was time for him to take the throne of France 20 years later, he had to convert to Catholicism, having his name changed to King Henry IV. After King Henry IV took power, he decided to connect the main palace with the Tuileries Palace. After this, it was named the Grand Gallery. After the two buildings were connected, it became one of the longest palaces in the world. And we're going to fast forward a little bit to the 17th century because I do not have time to go over every single person that lived in this palace. So, like I said, moving on to the 17th century, when King Louis XIII took power, he continued to expand the palace. Before the death of King Louis XIII, he proclaimed his four-year-old son, Louis XIV, to rule. Since he was so young, Queen Anne and Cardinal Marzarn assisted him until he turned 23. Because the king was so young when he was crowned, a lot of nobility did not approve 
approve of the queen mother's decision. There were a lot of rebellions against his mother, and this made the king fearful of rebellions, and he grew up to hate living in Paris. Besides growing up with all the fear, he still loved the arts. He built a new facade that boxed in the original courtyard. Inside, he built a new royal waiting room to wow impressionable guests. And then he had his architect, Louis Laveau, make a grand gallery devoted to the king himself to make everyone understand that he was the ultimate power and godlike. He began to call himself the Sun King and expanded the royal art collection from 150 paintings to 2,376 paintings, buying the best French art of the time. Eventually, the king moved out of the Louvre and into his palace of Versailles, leaving the Louvre empty and unfinished. While the palace was left empty, artists moved in to make and sell their wares, from furniture to hats to paintings. Next, intellectuals and artists living in Paris suggested to the French court that they make a museum and dedicate it to the king. King Louis XIV liked this idea. So to start, the king sent select pieces of artwork back to the Louvre for display. Only a few people were invited, and it was only open on select days of the week. Now we are going to fast forward to the French Revolution. After King Louis XVI was beheaded via guillotine, and we all know what that means, and I just realized you couldn't see me putting my finger across my throat for dramatic effect, so that fell flat. Anyway, moving on, the new leaders of France decided to make a space to use art to educate the citizens of the new republic. They decided to make a permanent space inside the Louvre to display artwork that was depicting the revolution. The opening ceremony of the Louvre was held on August 10, 1793. They called it the People's Museum. It was declared that from that moment on, all art was nationalized. This brought in art from all the royal collections, riches from the church, and also art left behind by exiles. They put all the art on the miles of hallways and opened it on a 10-day week schedule. Six days for the artists who could take paintings down and copy them. They also were allowed to make chalk marks on the paintings and the walls. Three days for the public to come and see the art and closed one day for cleaning and repairs. Could you imagine today somebody trying to rub chalk on the Mona Lisa they would totally get tackled by security before they even made it past the first rope that keeps people back from it not to mention I'm pretty sure it's encased in bulletproof glass but I'm not hundred percent sure the Revolutionary Army was given an order to confiscate works of art from Belgium Italy Persia and Austria and now the self-proclaimed Emperor of France Napoleon Bonaparte renamed the museum in 1803 to the Napoleon Museum. He removed old portions of the remaining palace and built new wings to hold new art collections. He also remodeled the Great Gallery and added overhead lighting and large double archways. He then built the Arc de Triomphe in honor of his greatness. He even placed stolen art from Italy on top of it. In 1815, after Napoleon abducted close to 5,000 works of art, they were all sent back to the original countries. There are a few exceptions. Some pieces were just too big to move again. But this did not stop the Louvre from getting new exhibits. On the 25th of October, 1836, an obelisk came from Egypt and was unveiled outside of the Louvre. Jean-Francois Champlon was the curator of the Egyptian artifacts at the Louvre, creating a full Egyptian exhibit now called the Egyptian Antiquities. He was the first person to decipher ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics using the Rosetta Stone. He also invented the science of Egyptology. Over the next several decades, the Louvre was remodeled, had more wings built, and more political change came to France. But the biggest 
biggest change to the Louvre wouldn't come until World War II. When the Germans began to invade other countries in 1939, the director of the museum, Jean Jujard, was afraid that France would soon fall to the German advance. So he decided to organize a complete evacuation of the Louvre's artwork. He began by closing the Louvre for three days starting on August 25, 1939 stating that the reason was for repairs, but what was actually going on inside the museum was a complete secret. Much of the art collection was quickly created into 1,862 wooden cases and hauled away in 203 trucks. They moved the artwork to Chateau de Chambord. After this, the artwork was hidden throughout France. After the three-day clean-out, they kept creating and moving artwork in secret until the last piece was removed on September 3, 1939. After the Germans invaded France in 1940, they found the Louvre completely empty and the artwork was hidden all around the country. Just because the art was moved out of the Louvre did not keep the building from having art in it. When the Nazi army got to France, they used the Louvre as a warehouse for their own Stalin artwork. Like I said at the top of the show, it's like this building wants itself to be a building of art no matter what the circumstance. After World War II ended, the museum was brought back to its former purpose and glory. In the 80s, the big glass pyramid was built in the middle of the courtyard and now acts as the entrance. Today, it is on many people's bucket lists. I know it is on mine. The Louvre offers new exhibits often, and the newest being the Department of Islamic Art. They offer audio guided tours, and I just have to talk about this for a second because I think it's really cool and I'm kind of nerdy about this. They apparently use Nintendo 3DSs as your guide around the museum. You not only can hear about the art you are looking at, but you can also do an interactive 45 minute tour of the exhibits. They also have an app that you can download on your phone if you don't want to use a DS. If audio tours aren't your thing, they have plenty of guided tours as well. They have uh, more of a family-friendly tour, and then they also have it for people that really want to get deep into the history of artwork. The Louvre has an auditorium as well where they hold lectures, films, live performances, and readings. Normally, it is open every day, but sadly, due to the uh, COVID-19 outbreak, it was closed for a few days for cleaning. And now, as I looked online today, they canceled a lot of their stuff they were going to do, and they're limiting the number of people who are allowed inside. So they are recommending that you book a time slot to be allowed to enter the Louvre. So, um, yeah, and if you have coronavirus and you're sitting in your house right now in quarantine, I'm really sorry and I hope that you get better soon. With all the modern lighting and exhibits, you can almost forget that this place is over 800 years old and it would be quite a shock for you to be walking around with your Nintendo DS or phone in hand and you look up to see a ghost staring at you from across the room. The Louvre is considered one of the most haunted buildings in all of France, and with all that history I just went over, it's no wonder why it wouldn't be. There are so many different types of hauntings at this location, from residual to some downright terrifying encounters. Let's start with EVPs. EVPs stand for Electric Voice Phenomenon. 
Many people believe that EVPs is when a ghost is trying to reach out to you and you don't hear it in real time, but then you go back and you hear it on a recorder. It's believed that some ghosts can manifest the equipment and get their message through. While this museum does not allow ghost tours, and I'm sure there's no way in heck they'd ever allow a real ghost hunt to go on inside the Louvre, they do allow you to film inside, which is how EVPs have been usually captured. Many tourists have recorded their time at the Louvre, and then they've gone home and rewatched their videos to find them crawling with EVPs. I found a few threads talking about this, as well as a few videos online. De and they seem to depend on what side of the building you're in. So when you're in the medieval exhibit that shows the original foundation of the fortress that's underneath, you hear EVPs that sound like people are going about their normal military duties, talking about gates being opened and closed. And there's one famous one of you hear this distant cry yelling, for the king in French. It has been heard on many occasions. As you move throughout the Louvre, you get to hear the original halls of the royal palace. So here, the EVPs have been heard of women chatting in the hallways in French, and even the sound of high-heeled shoes walking down the hallway when there is no one in high-heeled shoes around at the time, or even sometimes no one on that floor at the time. Remember, this museum is that big, you can be alone sometimes, even though there's 30,000 people around you. It's crazy. Now, I will admit that it is very echoey in the Louvre from the videos that I watched, and it might have just been another guest talking and it bouncing off the walls. But some of them sound crystal clear, as if someone is standing right next to the microphone. And sometimes the way they say things doesn't exactly fit the way we talk. So maybe you never know. Disembodied voices and footsteps can be heard as well by guards who are patrolling the halls at night. Staff, along with visitors, have reported seeing orbs floating down hallways, and some even reported seeing them floating in and out of paintings. And that makes me wonder if that's like the spirit of the artist possibly revisiting his paintings? That's very interesting. Or it might be something else a lot creepier, and I'll get to that in a minute. While walking throughout the exhibit, some have claimed to see strange shadows darting across hallways and hiding behind walls. Some human-shaped shadows have even leaned around doorways as if they're peeking back at you. Child laughter and the sound of children playing has also been reported to be heard on several occasions. A woman in black had been reported to haunt the Tuileries Palace. Some believe that this was the ghost of Queen Catherine. If you remember, this building was built by Queen Catherine de' Medici. In the 16th century, she was known for more than just the Bartholomew's Day Massacre. The locals at the time began to think that Catherine dabbled with the dark arts. They thought her to be a black magic witch and used her powers to have control over her son and the country's noblemen. Historians did find several hidden apothecary cabinets inside the royal apartment in the main palace. Whether or not it was to hold poisons for her victims, that's debatable. But historians do believe that she was a fan of astrology, alchemy, and the occult. One of her top advisors was also believed to be in the occult. Catherine had killed many people in her time, and there was a very strong rumor at the time that she used the hearts of the men she killed as the red in the paintings that she patroned. Her most famous killing might have produced a ghost or a demon-type creature that still haunts the gardens of the Tuileries building to this very day. The legend goes like this. After the king died of a mysterious accident at a jousting competition, and of course, I ran into some rumors going around at the time that she had her husband killed, people really did not like her from what I found out. Anyway, she hired a henchman to take out her political rivals. This henchman's name was Jean Lucard, also known as John the Skinner. 
She had him kill off many of her rivals and political opponents, but soon she began to feel paranoid that he would spill all her dirty secrets. So to stop him from ever being able to spill the beans, she had him killed, and he was murdered in the gardens of the Tuileries Palace. After his death, people began to see what they called a red man, a devil dressed in scarlet. He's described as a small man that is clothed from head to toe in scarlet with piercing eyes. He was seen as a harbinger of doom. There have been many reports of this red man appearing to people staying at the Tuileries Palace. He showed himself on the evening that King Henry IV was assassinated. On May 14, 1610, he was seen before King Louis XVI was killed via guillotine. In 1793, he also showed himself to Marie Antoinette and her ladies-in-waiting before she was beheaded at the guillotine as well. He was overheard talking with Napoleon. He appeared this time as a tall man in red at the door of Napoleon's room, and the conversation was overheard later, and it was written down. The red man apparently said, This is my third appearance to you. I came first at the Battle of the Pyramids, second at the Battle of Wagmar, and now this is my final time to warn you that you have three months to complete your excursion of your design or comply with the proposal of peace offered to you by the Allies. Whether or not that story is true, it's very creepy. The Red Man made his final appearance just a few days before May 23rd, 1871. A journalist reported the story from a terrified Louvre caretaker. He said he was making his rounds at night when he looked up to see human forms standing in a window. The caretaker, thinking he had just caught someone breaking in, charged the man. But then when his light from the caretaker's lantern fell on the man he was chasing after, the caretaker saw a man dressed in all red before he vanished before his eyes. The caretaker remembered the legend of the red man and ran out of the building. And I don't blame him. I probably would have booked it out of there too. This later would have also been seen as a warning because on May 23rd, the Tuileries Palace burned up. By, it was set on fire by 12 men who were under orders from an angry former chief military commander. Luckily this time, no artwork was lost, and the Red Man and the Lady in Black has not been seen since. But the Red Man still remains a popular ghost story, and some claim that the Red Man is still around roaming the gardens, especially at night. In the courtyard where the bloody killings of the Bartholomew's Day Massacre took place, some have said to see ghosts of old guards as if they are going through their duties. Also, monks in dark cloaks have been seen as if they are on their way to church for mass. Disembodied screams have also been reported, possibly residual energy from that bloody day. But I saved the most terrifying ghost for last. If you heard that music and said, hey, that's not from Paris, well, you're right, but it's also relevant to the story because our last ghost comes from ancient Egypt in the Ancient Egypt Antiquities exhibit. Ever since the exhibit has opened, it seems it brought something with it, a ghost mummy. This mummy has been named Belphegor, and he is believed to be the ghost of the actual mummy that is encased in glass within the exhibit. 
Many guards have claimed to see a mummy wandering the halls at night with the ancient curses that have been attached to many artifacts and mummies found in ancient Egypt. It's not too much of a stretch to think that something could have come with all the artifacts plus the mummy that were brought to the museum. After all, hieroglyphs were not depicted until after the artifacts came to the Louvre. You never know. The warning could have been on the tomb before it was even opened and the hieroglyphs they were reading was a warning. I hope that you all had a fun time touring the historic Louvre with me. I know that I had a lot of fun doing the history and covering the spooky things that happened at this location, especially during closing hours. I hope that you will all follow me on Instagram at history underscore mystery 13 and my Facebook page is history and mystery. Email me your personal ghost stories so that you can hear it on my show at history and mystery dot 13 at gmail.com. Also, I want to thank anyone who has taken the time to rate and review my show. It helps keep me going and also makes others be able to find my podcast. So thank you all so much. I have a lot of websites for this episode to thank. So I'm going to be brief. Bear with me uh, just for a minute. Thank you to the website, History Channel, Discover Walks Blog, Wikipedia, Neapolitan, um, Britannica.com. Funny enough, I can't believe they're still alive. Um, Hotel Julius, uh, NoNews.co, um, Petersburg.com, Timeout.com, and of course, some threads I found on Google. Uh, as you can see, I put a bunch of research and a lot of work goes into every episode that I do. And that's why sometimes it takes me a while and I have ADD and uh, I work really hard to make these come out for you guys. So I hope you guys like them. Um, I'd like to have a shout out to my parents, my mom, who always has my back and never lets me give up on my dreams, and my dad, who helps me out a lot by bouncing my crazy, haunting ideas um, for new episodes off him all the time. So I love you guys so much. Thank you both. And I can't wait to be back. So stay tuned for my first bonus episode, which will drop on my Patreon page really soon sometime this week. I hope Hope you all have a fantastic week. Stay healthy, wash your hands, cough into your elbow. I hope we'll all get through this coronavirus scare together. And I cannot wait to tell you about my new location that I will soon be announcing on my Facebook and Instagram page. So stay tuned and I can't wait to see you guys next time. Bye. Thank you.